Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to another episode of New Books and Poetry. I am your host, John Eversall, and I'm delighted to be joined by the poet and critic William Logan. William Logan's most recent book of verse is Madam X, published by Penguin, and he has a forthcoming book of criticism coming out soon called Guilty Knowledge, Guilty Pleasure from Columbia University Press. William Logan, welcome. John, pleasure to be here. Um, yeah, it's a pleasure having you. I've been wanting to talk to you for a long time, and I've been reading your I've been reading your work for a real long time. Um, this is uh, this is what number of book is this? This is like your eleventh book, is it? A I can't say I've kept count. I think it's perhaps the ninth plus uh, a selected. God, that's right. Yeah. So, so who knows? Yeah, let me ask you right off the bat. How have you kind of looking back over that course of time, have your priorities changed as a poet about, you know, the content you cover or what changes have you noticed uh, in your sensibility as a poet? (laughs) Well, I try not to notice those changes as much as possible. I'm not. (laughs) I'm not the sort of poet who thinks this book is a project and it has its own arc and its own drama or melodrama. I write a poem and then I write another poem. And maybe if I'm lucky, I write a poem after that. I don't really plan these things out. I don't think that's a virtue. I don't think it's a vice. Um, But whatever my constitution is, it's such that I think about local matters uh, more than anything else. However, I will admit that once and once only, I did get into a position where I thought, well, I could make a whole book of sequences on Venice, which was, which would be, which became Macbeth and Venice. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not completely immune to the idea. Though, in general, I find uh, project books, uh, disappointing. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder why poets are just drawn to them. Like, <laughs> what is the attraction to them? Is it that they feel just a intense need to publish, you think, or? Well, uh, the grapevine, I'm told, says that publishers are more susceptible to the idea of a project. Oh, that's and interesting. I try to dissuade my students from this idea because uh, what, what I what I say is that if you have a project, even a good project, you write the first three poems, but the project then writes you. Yeah. And you're in the bad position for a poet of just fulfilling an idea rather than feeling in some small way inspired by a line or a rhythm or a word and going on and doing something with it. Yeah, it is. It is kind of that weird difference of like having a set project and some sort of like idea of an outcome versus kind of the inspired poem. You know, it's kind of has always struck me where you've mentioned uh, the classroom. You're at University of Florida. That's right. Indeed. And how long have you been there? This is uh, 31st year, not counting years off. <clears throat> excuse me, years off in England That's for amazing. sabbatical or leave or something. 31 years. So, how did you originally? God, Florida's changed in a well. Maybe it hasn't changed all that much. Um, how'd you end well, this, up there? This is North Florida. We don't change very much up here. We we have our <laughs> gators and uh, we have our swamps and uh, 
we don't have a lot of construction. It's it's a bigger town than it was in the early 80s when Deborah and I moved here, yeah. but it's not unrecognizable at all. Yeah, I all because I grew up right outside of Orlando in this town called Winter Park, and uh, so many of my friends after high school went to U of S, and I visited Gainesville often, um, so I'm familiar, very familiar with the town. How did you, in particular, end up there? Uh, in in uh, 83, Deborah and I had been living in England for two years on an Amy Lowell Poetry Traveling Scholarship, as it was called, mm. uh, which is essentially was essentially a fellowship, uh, not for very much money, but enough to keep us abroad for a while. And at, at the end of toward the end of that second year, uh, we were applying for jobs in the states. One of the ones I applied to was here at UF. I had been recommended for the position, as had half a dozen or a dozen others by Donald Justice, who had been here just a year. And they were looking for somebody who would come in as a younger poet, but someone who could also direct the creative writing program. Wow, that's exciting. And clearly, uh, 31 years later, you must have been uh, pretty happy with it. So it's interesting because in your work, you're always kind of, I don't know if you're wrestling with Florida or just kind of, <laughs> or you, I don't know. I, I sense that you have an intimate knowledge of it and at the same time, are able to kind of look at it objectively. How have you, I'm always curious about anybody who's spent more than like a month in Florida because it's such a strange place to me. Um, you know, how, is, how have you felt just living in the, the state with the prettiest name? Well, I don't think it knows it has the prettiest name. It has it has so many problems. Uh, any state that doesn't have a state income tax has a lot of problems. Hmm. And uh, financially, it's a state that is in many ways uh, at the top of the ranks of the South only because it has a sales tax and a hell of a lot of tourists. Yeah, uh, it, it's got ferocious problems of poverty and 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 and, uh, and you know, cultural poverty as well. However. It's a very beautiful state, and, and Bishop, though she lived at the other end of it, uh, was absolutely right that it's, it is one of the prettiest states. And the outside, sorry. Oh no, go ahead. I, I just was going to say you, you can be you can go from my house into into swamp and uh, what we call prairie, which is a kind of marshy prairie, in about eleven minutes. Yeah, that's and incredible. We're close. We're close to nature. Yeah, and like uh, it or not. How, you're pretty close to the Ocala National Forest, I guess. No? Reasonably close. About 10 years ago, they caught a small bear that had come <laughs> out of the Ocala forest and was in our neighborhood. <laughs> That's hilarious. So, I, I mean, do you like Florida? I do like Florida. It took about 10 years to like it. I, I, I think that I was all too willing to get out. Uh, I thought I might be here about five years. I liked Donald quite a lot, and I liked the department, and I liked the students. All of that was fine. Yeah. But I didn't like Florida so much in the beginning. It was too hot and too southern and uh, too much mired ah, in old ways. I, the hamburger joint we loved, which closed down a few years ago, mm -hmm. uh, was called Louie's Lunch and served these 1920s-style hamburgers. Huh. But not 10 years before it, it's still been segregated. People forget that the South was segregated in all sorts of ways until the 70s. Yeah, I remember uh, my own mother telling me, like, uh, it must have been in the late 70s, that a department store we were in one day, you know, and she pointed out, like, absolutely remembering, you know, the separate water fountains and bathrooms. Yep. Yep. And uh, Florida is such a transient state, and people don't think of it as, like, like having a culture, I guess. But you're right. It is actually, uh, despite some like urban centers, it's steeped in kind of a Southern culture. And, uh, 
I don't know. Some people don't consider it the South, but my encounter with it has been as very much, very much the South. Um, and the climate, it's so just, it's so one dimensional. I think that's when I moved up North, it was just amazing. I didn't even know the order of the seasons for a long time in my childhood living in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was really incredible. But, um, I just wanted to say, because you talk about the natural beauty of Florida and I was visiting recently this weekend and in central Florida, there's so much uh, commercial activity and the landscape is so flat that there doesn't seem to be anything to stop it. And there's nothing worth almost preserving from history, it seems like. Um, and what it does, in my experience, is it kind of uh, throws a blanket over its very unique natural beauty. Mm. And uh, and I find that tension constantly now when I revisit there. It's that uh, whether it's the cypress trees or the marshes and the prairies that you mentioned and the alligators and just the whole exotic landscape gets kind of just uh, eclipsed by this uh, the kind of extremity of the place uh, commercially and the human activity of it. But anyway, so you uh, so before uh, you were in Gainesville, you did your MFA at Iowa. That's correct, right? I was at Iowa in the early 70s. Yeah. What was that experience like? I liked Iowa City. It was uh, it, it was a, a wonderful place to be in graduate school, a small town, one where you couldn't escape very easily to a larger city and distract yourself. Right. Uh, Don Justice, who was my teacher there and, and who was my colleague here for 10 years, once said at the beginning of, beginning of an interview with uh, a young fiction writer, he said, well, I think you ought to know the, the first thing about Florida and the University of Florida and Gainesville is it's boring here. <laughs> we all looked, I think, very uncomfortable. There was a long beat, and then Don says, but for a writer, that can be a good thing. Right. <laughs> and uh, so you've been there for 31 years. I know I always read in your biography that you also live in London as well. Can you tell me about Cambridge. how – Oh, Ca in Cambridge. Yeah. Cambridge. Yes. Well, how did that all uh, kind of unfold in your life? Deborah and I uh, came out of uh, – Deborah Greger, my mm -hmm. wife, uh, though I, it's hard to think of her as my wife because we were just uh, sweethearts for 36 <laughs> years before we finally got married. When did you get uh, married? Uh, 2009, I want to say. Oh, wow. But uh, I'm a little vague on the date at this point. <laughs> but <laughs> I can still scarcely believe it. That is incredible. All right, go ahead. So we were in uh, – we were in Cambridge uh, – on an Amy Lowell fellowship in 1981, we we had uh, emerged from Iowa City. She got out of the workshop the year before I did. We we came out of Iowa City in 1975. Deborah had two years at the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown and a year teaching at George Mason and two years teaching at Chico. After that, she had a Radcliffe fellowship, but I had won this Amy Lowell, and uh, the Amy Lowell people were kind enough to put it on hold for a year. Oh no. So, we ended up we ended up uh, in England, and as we uh, as we didn't know England very well, I'd been there once years before. We decided we wanted to live in a university town uh, and in an English speaking country. So England and Cambridge or Oxford, we pretty much flipped the coin. It was Cambridge, which was probably the right choice. Cambridge was a very different kind of town from Oxford, not nearly so developed and not nearly so trafficked. Mm. Um, and there we were. Yeah, and how do you? Uh... What are some of the comparisons to, I mean, just, I don't know why, but I, 
it seems like polar opposites to go from there to Florida and kind of working those two locations. Uh, how does, does your disposition or mood or like, how do you change between those two locations? I suppose when you're first making trips to a country that has different, like different cultural or different standards or different, different habits, uh, it is strange at first for some weeks or months. Uh, you have to, in Britain, you have to, watch where the traffic is coming from at first Mm -hmm. and you have to figure out the money you have to figure out how to speak it's very difficult on the phone for somebody to understand not the words of an american but the intonations and you have to lift your voice at different in different parts of the sentence in order to make (laughs) it more comprehensible to the average Brit. uh there's all of that but but you know once you've done it five or six times you go on automatic the way people do who know a second language well. Then right. you can shift back and forth without even thinking about it. And so at this point, it's a matter of taking a suitcase over, opening up the closets in our house, they're getting out our stuff, and then it's just we just start. It's it's no transition at all because uh, uh, Gainesville, a Gainesville winter is like an English summer. So we're <laughs> either two English summers or two Florida winters. Exactly. <laughs> and do your uh, work habits change at all? I mean, is Florida kind of more geared towards, you know, busy work and then England is more kind of a time to relax? Or, I mean, it's just the way you're describing it is almost just uh, William Logan is the same person everywhere he goes. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope that's true. I think uh, I, I would say that the, the main advantage to moving so sharply uh, once a year or twice because we come back, of course, yeah. is that you clear your desk. Mm. You yeah. put all the stuff away. You take over a few files and a, and a laptop and you start over again. And in, in a week or two, of course, everything is messed up. But I don't think it's a bad thing for a writer to have to put things away once in a while. Yeah. And I guess so, this rhythm is totally ingrained by now. It is. Uh, we've We've done it. So often we've been over there for the summer for the past 20, 21 years, and we've had five or six long stays of 15 months. So we're, uh, we're, you know, we're, we're bicontinental, I suppose, without feeling any more sophisticated for that. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to ask you real quick. I am, I'm not married to a poet. Um, I'm married to a poet lover, but what's it, um, uh, is, have you have any observations about being, uh, uh, now married to a to a poet and living with a poet. I mean, is it just kind of a silly question? I, I don't think it's a silly question. It's a question often asked, uh, and and I suppose it's often asked because people presume that there must be some kind of antagonism or jealousy when two writers work together, or maybe like a deep camaraderie. You know. Well, I I think it's closer to that than any jealousy. I remember yeah. I remember in the late seventies we'd been together two or three years and it had applied to all sorts of stuff. Right. And uh, and Deborah had certainly gotten things I hadn't, and I'd gotten things that she hadn't. But there was a moment when she won her first NEA, and I was jealous for about <laughs> twenty four hours. <laughs> and then you know I thought, well, it's kind of a win for us both. Yeah. And. I suspect that any honor either of us has had has had the same reaction from the other, that we're you know, we're not partners of a terrible word, but we're we're collaborating or we're we're joined at the hip or or we're we're hitched, which is a metaphor for rope. Uh, so um, uh, one lover used to call another lover uh, amusingly old rope. Hmm. Uh, we're used to it, and it's 
productive in that we read each other's work and we we can scribble on it the way nobody else would be allowed to. I was yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Just like having that one trusted reader must be incredible. Um, where I wanted to ask you where uh, where is the rest of your family? Where were you uh, born and raised? I was born in Boston in 1950 in a in a, a lower I guess suppose a lower middle class housing development. My dad was a salesman for Alcoa. Hmm. He'd come out of the war. He was a Navy radio man on a ship that ran mail to Iceland. Really? And it was not a glorious war. It was not a bad war. Uh, he came out without a scratch and went to college on the GI Bill, went to Yale, which he'd flunked out of before he entered the Navy, and took a degree in engineering. But hmm. after the war, salesman seemed like the right job, and he was that, and then an executive for a number of years with uh, Alcoa, a uh, small boating firm on Long Island, and then boating parts firm, and then Con Edison, and then in his 50s, went into real estate with my mom. Huh. And uh, and you saw family all still in Boston. Do you have siblings? I have siblings. I have three brothers and a sister. We lived, aside from Boston, we lived in uh, Westport, Massachusetts, which is down on the coast near New Bedford. Uh, we lived in Pittsburgh. We lived on Long Island when I was in high school. And that's pretty much where my folks stayed until my dad died and my mom moved to Florida for the last years of her life. My siblings... Uh, one is employed as my sister's employed as a caregiver and other things on Long Island. Uh, hmm. My brother Pete's a lawyer in Marin County. My brother Dave is a lawyer in San Diego. My brother Jim makes boats uh, near the Hudson. Oh wow! Do you know anything about boat making? Uh, no, I don't know much about boat making. I like <laughs> boats, uh, but boat making—that's beyond my purview. <laughs> and uh, how did uh, uh, this is probably a weird question? I don't know. Did how did you get? How did poetry find you? I mean, how did you find poetry? Is this something where you like were? Or let me ask you this: In the family culture you're in, did you visually see as a child people reading often? Like, was that an image that you were always kind of exposed to? Uh, what was kind of like your introduction to just the you know reading and writing? Well, yeah, wouldn't that be nice if one came from a family where uh, War and Peace was thrown at you every day until you read it? Uh, my folks read, but they, they read Book of the Month Club books. They were not massive readers. Sure. Uh, they, they, they had genial middle class tastes and, uh, and uh, a genial or more than genial middle class income. Um, but I was, I was a reader from before I could read. I pretended to read by memorizing books I had been read. Mm. Which is, uh, which I suppose is the way a lot of young readers who like the idea of reading, uh, begin. Um, uh, I, I still have a, a, I don't know what it is, a, pay, a page or a note card or something from high school where I was trying to read a book a day. Oh my but God. The, day, the books that you could read in a day if you had other things, because I had a minor interest in sports, uh, were generally popular books. Yeah. And so I had to slow down in order to read anything that was that was worth reading. <laughs> As for poetry, I had the usual crappy high school introduction to it, yeah. uh, which is generally poems written by 19th century women with three names. Oh my uh, God. Horrible things. Uh, <laughs> and, and high school English is indeed, is indeed fairly dire, or at least right. was then. Uh, but I confess, I had I had the chance to be in the AP English class in my high school. Uh, I received a handwritten invitation from the teacher who had done this course for 25 years, and it invited me to join the Peacock Club. What was that? <laughs> well, that was what it was called. She called her AP class the Peacock Club. Oh, nice. 
And I stood by my mailbox and looked at this thing, and I thought, the one thing I can't do is join the Peacock Club. <laughs> so one of many academic mistakes I made was not to take the AP course in English and to have a probably much worse course uh, with my friends. Uh, poetry, I, I don't, I'm not sure how poetry found me. The the the, the, the just-so story is that uh, I, in the 11th grade, I think, was angry with my folks one evening and scribbled a poem. Uh, about them or against them. Uh, that's a miserable, <laughs> terrible poem, I'm sure. But it, it did give me a taste for something that was like poetry. No, and, that's it. And <laughs> no, when I got to college, well, when I got to college, I took a few writing workshops without learning a thing. Uh, I don't say the teachers were bad. One was a rather good uh, teacher who was a Yale younger poet, but they didn't, they didn't have the key to unlock whatever I had, uh, meager though it must have been. Yeah. And where where did you go to do your undergraduate work? I was at Yale. You were at Yale. And uh, we have been talking off air momentarily. Is that where you met uh, Richard Howard for the first time? It is indeed. Yeah, my and... senior year. Sorry? Oh, go ahead. Well, my senior year, I had two workshops in the last semester. One was poetry and one was nominally fiction. Richard Howard taught the poetry class. It was the second course he'd ever taught. He'd been back from France for a year or so where he'd been employed as a lexicographer. Mm-hmm. And so it was all new to him. And he was really from the start, an extraordinary teacher. He didn't conduct a workshop the way workshops are normally conducted. He just engaged in a wonderful, brilliant monologue about poetry. <laughs> he would read us people like Bishop and he would talk about poetry. And then after two hours, he'd give us an assignment, which we do turn in the next week. And the week after that, he'd, read aloud the one he liked best and maybe a stanza or so from a couple that he liked a little. And that was it. We never saw the poems again. That's incredible because I, I mean, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I teach once in a while, some undergraduate workshops and sometimes I don't have an idea of what I'm doing in there. Uh, so it's interesting that he would just pick out a couple things that some people have written, but the main thrust of the course was, uh, look, I know a lot, <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I'm going to tell you guys what I know, and hopefully that'll inspire you. And that was your senior year? Well, yeah, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't have put it quite that way. I would say, here's somebody who had written a fair amount of poetry, a lot of it pretty interesting, mm-hmm. and who loved poetry. And he was just so um, overfull with emotion about it yeah. that he wanted to share it with students. It wasn't, I never had the feeling from Richard that he ever talked down to us. He might have, he might have laughed, I suppose, if we said something that was perfectly idiotic, yeah. but we weren't really asked to say anything. <laughs> so it was, it was conducted as a wonderful <laughs> model. No, that is fantastic. And so was it a no brainer for you to pursue the MFA? It wasn't a no brainer. Um, I knew about the third week into Richard's class that what he was asking me to do in his assignments were things that I had never understood could be done by me in poems. And the key insight for me was that all of the ingenuity I had expended on math and science and even even as an undergrad in, in some graduate courses in probability and statistics, all of that could be done with language. Right. That language was essentially problem solving. You just had to set yourself a problem. The imagination responds to difficulty and to being asked to do things it hasn't done before. Exactly. I I don't use Richard's assignments, but I use assignments with my students that ask them to do such things. 
so to get back to the you know to the story of of <laughs> the foundation of all of this <laughs> such as it is um the second class i had was a fiction class so i was allowed to write poetry because i had proposed the class and the teacher knew that i didn't really have a lot of interest in doing fiction so he he was glad for me to write poetry it was another monologue this huh. was a very young teacher he was 25 he uh, was the, apparently the highest scoring Yale student ever on the final English exam, wow. which at, by the time I was there a few years later was not being offered. And he was a great favorite of Robert Penn Warren and Cleance Brooks, two of the leading lights of the English department at that time. Hmm. This guy was astonishing. He was uh, <laughs> he was probably the only true genius I met as a student. And he had an ability to talk off the cuff without notes about a Faulkner book, or we did Light in August, or Fitzgerald, or Hemingway, or any of the other standards, or even a, uh, some, something of an oddity like Richard Yates's Revolutionary Road. Right. He would give a brilliant hour lecture on this. It was supposed to be a two-hour class, and he'd look at his watch, and once he went an hour and ten minutes and held the watch up in triumph, but it was really more than about 50 minutes. That was about what he could do. That's interesting. Uh, I, I just well, wonder if uh, Professor... You know, feel. I mean, these professors clearly didn't feel guilty about just kind of going on with such enthusiasm, and and it. And I think, I don't know. I'm sure this has happened to you in the classroom where, uh, just. I guess I've wondered, like, wait. And your story tells me that the students do respond positively to that kind of enthusiasm, but I think I doubt myself sometimes. Uh, um. But I interrupted you. So this was like a prelude kind of. These are the kind of formative, formative experiences that were kind of leading up to the decision to pursue an MFA. Yeah. And, and so the, the fiction class taught me all sorts of things because this was his this was his angle uh, about how the, the form of the story, the direction of the story can test the characters in various ways and uh, put them in positions from which they have to make, say, a moral or ethical decision or, or something that creates drama and, and pathos or disaster or whatever, he thought through these things very carefully and was just extraordinary at being able to articulate them mm-hmm. to a bunch of kind of rough and ready uh, Yale students. Now, uh, he had gone to Iowa himself a few years before and mm-hmm. had had a, a somewhat checkered career. <laughs> uh, he had left after his first year to do some script writing in Hollywood on Peyton Place, that old soap opera that yeah. was on about four nights a week. And he eventually finished his Iowa degree. He was nominally a novelist. He'd done uh, about the first part of what was to be a trilogy about the effect on a family of the about uh, the effect on family of the death of their of their youngest son. Uh, and I read some of these uh, some of these chapters as they'd appeared in literary magazines. And what what impressed me was that in dialogue he was just amazing. He was an, just an extraordinary writer of dialogue. Uh, he had a ways to go with the narrative parts. Those were not quite as sophisticated. But the dialogue was just brilliant. And uh, in the course of time, he was drawn out to Hollywood and uh, became the uh, the uh, creator or became a writer on uh, Hill Street Blues and then the creator of NYPD Blue and Deadwood and Luck. His name is David Milch. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's amazing. <laughs> and uh, so after that, you headed off to Iowa and then uh, almost it seems like the rest of the history. That was in the 70s, too. And now when you're in the classroom and you're teaching, um, do you go, I mean, do you, you've been doing it so 
long now. Um, what are you finding uh, in your students that uh, you think need the most attention in their work? Well, that's, that's, that's a good question. I, I'm not a monologist, though. <laughs> when I'm answering questions from an interviewer, apparently I can go on a bit. <laughs> uh, but I, in general, the way I like to run a classroom is that, that I will give a few comments on, on a poem, and then students will comment, and I will react to their comments if I think it's necessary, which some of the time, much of the time it may be. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in seeing how they can turn what is just raw imagination into something that is a poem worth reading. And so we have to attend on the, you know, at the highest level to uses of language development of a, a of discourse in mm-hmm. some fashion. Uh, and also the formal problems that a poem might or might not present. We do, we do a little bit of meter. I generally teach meter for about three or four weeks and then do a couple of poems in meter, though that's mostly to train their ear so that when they read Pope or Milton or Shakespeare, they know something about what the poet thought he was doing. Right. As far as their poems are concerned, well, at the lowest level, it's it's correcting grammatical mistakes, which they uh, which they need, alas, because American high schools are afraid of teaching grammar and have been for about 40 years. Yeah. And I think that's uh, unfortunate because it means that I have to be an eighth grade grammar teacher as, <laughs> as much as anything else. And I don't want I'm not an eighth grade grammar teacher. And I don't want to be an eighth grade grammar teacher. <laughs> and are these mostly yeah, these are just straight graduate students, right? No, I'm talking about the undergrads. Oh, you did? Uh, I, I wasn't sure if you taught undergrad. Oh, yeah. Or... No, one of the great virtues, I think, of the University of Florida is that the way our uh, our academic schedule is constructed, we teach one graduate course a year, and we teach, uh, for full-time, we teach three undergraduate courses. <laughs> Do you find any difference between the, I don't know, the, the whole vibe in the classroom and the work being produced between the undergraduates and the and the graduates? Oh sure, of course, of course, there's a difference, um, but it, it's 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 an it's an interesting difference. The undergrads have a lot of raw imagination that's never been tapped before. Exactly, yeah. And and by the time they get to me, unless it's an honors class, in which case I'm pretty much getting them straight from the docs. Uh, I'm I'm facing students who have had one or two or three workshops already, sometimes with another, one of them will be with another graduate prof, uh, but they also have courses with my MFA students and they get a certain way so that they have a certain amount of sophistication by the time they come in. But still you're dealing with raw undergraduate imagination and you have to show them the sorts of things they might be able to do, which I think you can do using assignments faster than you can do in about any other way. Yeah, definitely. And uh, so I want to kind of, since the show is called New Books and Poetry, I do want to turn to uh, to Madame X. And I was wondering if you wanted to speak to, uh, did this did this manuscript and this book come about as most of your others have? Was there anything unique about how this one came into existence? I can't think of one unique thing about it. It's, <laughs> it's a collection of poems written over a certain time. <laughs> I didn't collect all of them. Uh, I I, I might have one or two that are from some period a year before or some month after the, where the body of them are from. But uh, I, I, either I have no gift for conceiving of books as some part, part of some master plan, the whole harmonium to use to use uh, Stevens's term, or I just prefer to think of these as collections, not not structured any better than one would construct any number of poems that one was faced by anybody else. You would yeah, them in a way that made them feel part of a whole. <laughs> Definitely. And uh, so I was hoping we could uh, 
we can open up and read a few of these if you don't mind. Sure. Um, I wondered, too, I wanted to ask real quick because I was talking to James Loganbach about this because he writes quite a bit of prose as well as poetry. Uh, when you're writing prose, is that pretty much something you do between poems? I mean, have you kind of worked out this kind of pendulum between producing <laughs> prose and I always, I almost speak for myself. It's like uh, when I'm not because like you, I think you you write poems as they kind of organically occur to you and are inspired to pen them where, you know, writing a review is kind of like an assignment that you can kind of just dig right into. Uh so are you just kind of seamlessly writing poetry and prose, or is there like a clear demarcation between those? Well, it's not seamless. Um, uh, it's hard to describe because I don't think that there's, that there's any uh, that there's any particular rule to it. Mm-hmm. There are certainly times when I can write poems and criticism in concert in some way, uh, but there are also times when writing the one is intense enough that it begins to block the other. And so I haven't written a lick of poetry. I haven't even looked at my summer manuscript since I've been back hmm. in in uh, in Florida. We're now in early October, so it's about six weeks of not even thinking about poems particularly. Uh, right. On the other hand, I've had periods just as long when I wasn't thinking about criticism. I, I do them as necessity dictates. Exactly. About the... <laughs> that makes total sense. Um, I was hoping you can read, uh, you can start us off with, uh, with the poem uh, Madame X. Sure. Visitors scarcely glance at her now as they pass by. I imagine a half-audible sigh escaping her pursed and self-confiding lips, like the thrum of certain certain stately ships that, having weighed anchor, never come to port. Her feelings, no doubt, were of the finer sort. In modesties and modesty, she averts her gaze through the crackled oil's concealing haze, a woman who touched up her ears with lavender powder, her skin the shade of Delmonico's clam chowder. The waist pinched narrow as a wasp's, not cinched tight until you could hear her gasp, her dress exposing in cold décolletage the alpine and slow breasts, which were briefly the rage. Hers was sometimes called a professional beauty, which implies a certain impersonal duty to a beauty evanescent as morning vapor. The painter thought her face like blotting paper. You can see, alas, how it would end. Those who rise so high rarely have grace to descend. A century on, my students' low-cut jeans have the effect of a match on gasoline, flaunting like a cold slice of mutton, a naked four inches below the belly button, a strip of flesh that asks the old question, is nothing more sexual than a taste for suggestion? For Madame X in her day was far bolder. Originally, the right strap had slipped off her shoulder. All right, thanks so much for that. Um, I don't... When you have a poem that you named the book after is that a special decision i'm getting the sense that you're going to tell me like (laughs) i'm getting the sense that this is not a big decision for you and you're like i don't know i just uh, is there anything behind uh naming the book this because i mean the poem is taking the position of like suddenly uh the piece of artwork is gazing at the gazers you know and and uh i don't know why'd you title the book madam x after this poem I don't get very anxious about those things. I, I think most of my titles have arrived at some point, seemed about the best I could do, and got put at the head of the manuscript. <laughs> I 
rarely second guess those things and I rarely try to make some sort of calculated decision about what, what I need or the market needs or the book. I, you know, William, don't you know it's supposed to be like this major philosophical decision to naming a major script yeah. after? I'm, and I'm sure it is for many people, but uh, <laughs> I lack that philosophical gene, I think. Well, it's interesting because you do have this kind of disposition of kind of like, and it's funny when I interview Leon, younger poets, I mean, they're like, this is like serious like business and it's not that you're not serious but that your seriousness is channeled into you know kind of that look i've made this poem i've made it and here it is and you don't attach any kind of uh kind of spectral kind of values to it um no and i I really it's kind of refreshing to hear uh the poem um is after you know that portrait uh How'd you come across that portrait? And it seems to be that the poem, you know, is kind of, and it, and throughout the book, you seem at times to be kind of, uh, you know, always kind of noticing the evolution of like immodesty and sexual immodesty in our culture and kind of pushing it against, uh, how things, uh, were in the past. Uh, can you talk about that in any way? Well, um, I'm, uh, I came across the the painting. It, it's it's a famous painting by John Singer Sargent, uh, now hanging at the Met. Uh, and uh, I must have come across it at some point and been struck by it. And perhaps in the back of my mind, it eventually associated itself with the 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 issue uh, that the poem eventually comes to, which is that the that Madame X in the late 19th century was uh, uh, was an outsider figure for having been painted with a strap coming off her dress, which right. to us would seem like a minor, a minor, a minor faux pas, a, 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 <laughs> something that might happen during a Super Bowl halftime. And, Precisely. But in this case, uh, it caused a huge ruckus because it suggested that uh, there was a body beneath the dress and that one might take off the dress and do God knows what with it. Um, Sergeant eventually, as, as the poem says, painted the strap back on. Yeah. But, it, it, the idea lingers that um, lingers that, that the modes and mores of, of culture are very changeable, so that uh, the, the bare breasts of, of one century become the extraordinarily covered breasts of another century. And yet, whenever you have a, a mode of fashion, there will usually be some way of signaling sexuality. Whether right. it's just the, the uncovered ankle of the Victorians, as, as we're often told, or just uh, complete nudity. We're <laughs> daily, I don't want to say assaulted with, maybe delighted by it. <laughs> I don't know. But um, the, the poem wants at some point to touch, uh, since I'm now in my 60s, uh, uh, that that feeling that one has when one looks at uh, undergraduates and sees them at the beginning of their of their lives, uh, intellectually and sexually, and, and sees the various ways in which they signal to their peers that they're um, that they're physical. Right. And, and you may recall that in the middle of the last decade, uh, a lot of female undergraduates were wearing extraordinarily short jeans that uh, that were buttoned about four inches below the belly button and had <laughs> extraordinarily short blouses that generally ended along around the bottom of the breast. So there was a lot of skin being shown for about four or five years. And then one day it was over. Right. Fashion moved on. 
Yeah, it's interesting how it is kind of has its finger on the pulse of kind of the sensibility of a culture. But I mean, it's funny because you brought up undergraduates and just working on a cam, uh, a campus, especially you don't probably see it as much at in Gainesville now, but you've been on other college campuses that transition, um, from winter to spring. Those first, uh, first, <laughs> the first like couple warm days of spring on a campus is like, uh, just, an explosion of flesh and it's like startling it's like oh my gosh people aren't wearing clothes anymore on campus um and you see that you see that in england sometimes in uh even in the cold days of may you'll get off you'll get off a train and see people coming from london up to cambridge to do clubbing or coming from cambridge down to london to do clubbing but they're on the platform uh young women basically in in uh 90s Right. <laughs> and high heels. <laughs> and you think, you think, don't they know it's, you know, it's 45 degrees? That's <laughs> incredible. But of course they do know. They do know. Yeah, they're, they're quite aware of it. Yeah. And, and do you have any sort of theory on, I mean, do, do you think these things just ebb and flow or are we like, what do you, do you attribute anything to like kind of the hypersexualization of young people? <laughs> No, I don't. I, I think I think that fashions of this sort uh, gain ground and, and lose ground. Uh, my students are, are are bewildered when I tell them that it was most unusual for an undergraduate in the late sixties, early seventies, an undergraduate woman to wear a bra. Right. They find this they find this deeply shocking. Um, and indeed, I know that one of my students was complaining mildly to a friend last semester because another young woman in the class wasn't wearing a bra, even though you really couldn't tell, and I hadn't noticed. Right. Uh, this, you know, what they're shocked by is not necessarily what their mothers were shocked by. Yeah, that, and that puts one in just a humbling position of, you know, having kind of strong, you know, kind of opinions about this kind of surface cultural uh, phenomenon. I was hoping we could move on to uh, page 25 where we find uh, Mrs. Custer in Washington City. Sure. And I was I wanted to ask you real quick before you started, what is um, – I did a little background on this uh, – is it, can you tell us real quick why you chose September 1864? Because my understanding that there was this like strange gap in the research I was looking at, like uh, that I I don't know she got married in 62, no 66. I don't know. No, no, she, she was married in the middle of the Civil War. What was the significance of this date? Why'd you pick it? I'm sorry, I couldn't hear that. Oh, what was the significance of September 1864, which is right below the title of the poem? Uh, it was it was merely the date in which the original letter was written. Both the letters in this in this pair of Custer poems, one by her, one by him, were based on actual letters, and I adjusted them for to make them into syllabic poems. Okay, so that's all. Yeah, that's great. Go ahead. So there was no there was no overriding thought about it, except that they seemed to be interesting letters and and to convey something of the personalities of this. Very interesting Custer, very interesting couple. <laughs> uh, the Custers were um, really extraordinary in some ways. George was one of the major generals in the Civil War. He was the most courageous and brilliant cavalry commander in the Army mm-hmm. and won a lot of crucial battles. Uh, he then, like most uh, Army officers who wanted to stay in the Army after the Civil War, was demoted. You had to accept a much lower rank because there just wasn't room for a lot of generals. Right. Yeah. And so he went from a he was a major general in in the uh, volunteers, I think, and a brigadier general in the army, or vice versa. And he became a lieutenant colonel uh, in the Seventh Cavalry. So uh, they were extraordinary in that they had chosen this army career 
And like uh, most other army couples at the time, they lived together out in, in, in this case, in the plains. Yeah. Uh, they, they, they lived together, and she accompanied him on various uh, expeditions. In fact, wanted to come with him on what, what became the expedition ending in the Battle of, of the Little Bighorn. I know. I was, that's what I read, that she would accompany him on these missions. I was, oh, yeah. I was amazed. It was incredible. Well, the, they were both good writers, and, and his book about his his life out there is is a very a very reasonable very good book. It's not as good as say uh, Grant's uh, memoirs, but it's it's a very good book. She's a wonderful writer. She's much better than he is, and her three books about their army experiences are really classics of American travel literature. Hmm. Yeah, that's so yeah, discussed her in Washington City. My darling, this is the saddest city: the maimed and bandaged soldiers mobbing the streets, slow-moving government hearses pass. The black coffins wrapped in the flag these boys died for. Painted establishments embalming the dead are planted on each corner. Old Mr. K stopped here last night, most cordial, too much so, for I had to avoid his bold attempt to kiss me by gripping a chair. This city is a Sodom crowded with sin, by day as well as by night. Small bands of ragged secessionists still weave through our half-rebel city, yet there is a fine show of patriotism. Our flag stretches across the street on the darkies parade dressed in bold and gaudy hues, unused to liberty, in proud procession, faces tinted pale to sooty black. Their babies have beady eyes and black woolly heads. They are all so good, I never heard one cry. All the avenues filled with gilded sin, some girls wearing their dresses suspiciously long. Even though I despise a veil, I might as well live in Turkey, for I dare not go out alone without one. My lodging house sits between a Lincoln flag, I'm quite a Lincoln girl, and a banner with McClellan's name. As soldiers pass, they raise a cheer for McClellan and groan for poor Lincoln, or just the reverse. The president, that great soul, is the gloomiest, most painfully careworn man I ever saw. If McClellan were elected, that would mean peace, dishonest peace, perhaps. Audie, I want peace on any terms. It may be unwomanly, much as I love my country, I love you more. Why must your brigade do everything? My canary notepaper says I'm cavalry. I've trimmed a hat with cavalry yellow. Your dear little army crow, Libby. That was great. And, uh, you know, as we immediately, just visually, the poem, you know, we were talking about Richard Howard and uh, how, and you, and you mentioned that this poem was uh, written in syllabics that he is, you know, so known for. What was it? Uh, What's what do you think of that restraint as you're working in it? Do you find it uh, that it's more conducive to like the monologue or or the the letter writing kind of poem? Um, what do you what is it, what was your experience with kind of taking this on? Um, it's a, it's a good question. I, I, I've certainly written syllabic poems that are not monologues, uh, that are say meditative, uh, and I've and I've written poems that uh, that like this one had as their source say a letter. I've done one for Lewis Carroll, uh, these two, and I did one that uh, that I think has been published only in magazines uh, by my fa- my grandfather's uh, second wife re- writing to my dad. Hmm. Um, there may be something about the way the material is already there that lets one shape it a little more easily than one might shape uh, something that you're you're generating out of your own imagination. I'm not sure. I, I, I don't do it all that often, but uh, it does seem to me a form that's sneaked in. To uh, to my uh, to my poems. Yeah, I mean, it's such I, a, I should. Sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna say it's such a it's such a rigid kind of a 
you know, uh, restriction to put on oneself that isn't entirely kind of making any sort of nods to, you know, the essential music. I'm wondering, you know, what is the impulse to write in that kind of restriction? I mean, I've, I've written syllabics and I, I like counting, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I just, I find it, I just find it interesting since it's not like, you know, you're not going to dum to dum to dum or anything. It is very much, and the poem as it cascades down the page is, does have this like jumpy visual quality to it. I think that is really nice. Um, but anyway, maybe I'm just kind of looking at it too hard. No, I, I, I think one can look at it a little harder. And I, and I think one would say that, that for the writer, there's the contrast between the fluidity of the original that one writes a letter without thought uh, as to its margins. It's, it's a prose medium. Right. Uh, a tension between the fluidity of, of the writing and the possible restrictions that the syllabic form throws up. So it's a puzzle. It's a puzzle to be worked out. And if okay. it's worked out at all well, then the line breaks are as imaginative, say, as, as, uh, as line breaks ought to be. That they're not just randomly disposed and so you lift to some extent the prose course of the medium into one of the many poetic forms available and uh, take advantage of it and if, if, if advantage is taken well then then perhaps the, the original letter becomes something more i think you definitely just answered my question um you're you're always drawn to historical figures and historical events uh it seems like a humble deference to that which has come before us is there any particular kind of when were, were you just kind of a naturally drawn amateur historian or something uh, <laughs> well, I, wouldn't like, put it, I wouldn't put it that way <laughs> I guess what I mean. it would be at a much lower level than amateur okay uh, but, you, but I, I i did have um an excellent uh ap history class and the pretty good AP world history class, or maybe it was not, maybe we didn't have AP world history, but I had a wonderful world history class and a wonderful AP American history class in high school. And when I got to college, what I wanted to major in was American history concentrating on the Jacksonian period, which I did more or less uh, uh, rigorously for a couple of years, uh, taking other courses as, as necessary or as when dictated. But I, I began to move off from that and, and in my sophomore year, sometime, I guess late in my sophomore year, I took these courses, these grad courses in probability because I thought I was going to do something in game theory, which was then a, a hot topic in political science and is a hot topic now, but was not perhaps quite so uh, interesting in the decades in between. Um, and then I, uh, unfortunately, my sophomore year ended with the uh, Cambodia incursion and the, uh, the student riots and strikes and the deaths of the kids at Kent State. And after that, I didn't really want to be in a major that had much to do with politics. Yeah. So I, I, I cashed in and did pretty much what I wanted in my last couple of years. Yeah. And it's interesting that your, you know, your artistic sensibility really flourishes when you engage when you engage history, and I, I just always find that interesting. Um, let's move on to page 43, uh, London High Summer. London High Summer. Trafalgar Square was gray with pigeons. Lord Nelson still erect above the fray, rustier now, lost in his cloudy thought, while tourists dragged themselves below, never meeting eye to eye. All Europe, a heat wave. On the underground, young girls with their bare torsos and effective breasts showed off all they knew, which was just enough, or not enough. 
They cut the lust with a knife. We were drowning, drowning in fair weather. I'd spent weeks watching the fields yellow with jaundice. The pheasants tiptoe out uncertainly and bargain for grain. That unreliable summer, the tropics sent the old world telegrams. The abandoned trade routes were geometric, rum in this direction, slaves in that, all for one and one for commerce. The great ships of the line had passed. Out in Greenwich, huge, tilted, overpainted anchors littered the lawns, as if the country had lain too long underwater and could not float. All right, thanks. That's, that's great. Um, it's, it's such an odd little poem. <laughs> it, uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, <you> say so. <laughs> well, it starts off with, you know, just kind of like, well, the tone of it is so kind of measured in the, and then we had the scene with, uh, you know, that they cut the lust with the knife. And I thought it was interesting that there was this kind of hint of the erotic that ends up going into more of a discussion about, you know, kind of old economics and abandoned trade routes, you know, and I just thought that was so, so odd. Um, I would say the the poem is heavily indebted to Lowell, and that, that lines like too long underwater and could not float or uh, cut the lust with a knife are, are very Lowell-esque lines, and I, I, Lowell has certainly been a, a major influence for me. And also the, the, the combination of, of culture and, and violence or, or art and war uh, lie beneath a lot of his great poems of the 60s. Yeah. I always go back to... Lord Weary's Castle just to tell myself that I'm lazy and that I'm not <laughs> and that I'm not working hard enough on my poetry. I hear you. Because that I hear you. I re- I'm just always stunned by that book. And I, I do see his his austerity and his eye in your work a lot. Uh um do you want to say any more about uh which role do you kind of gravitate towards or are you kind of uh agnostic about Say, I mean, he was like what, like twenty-one or something when he did Lord Wary's Castle, or well, let's see, he was born in he was born in nineteen seventeen, so he was in his early twenties when he did uh, the book, the poems for Land of Unlikeness, which was the private press book that right. uh, Harry Duncan published, and many of those poems, often heavily rewritten, were part of uh, Lord Weary, which was I think nineteen forty-six. So he was all of. Uh, 29 when that came out. That is incredible. It reminds me, I think, of a line that you've written somewhere about barnacles attached to the prow of a ship or something. Um, mm-hmm. And that that I'm really drawn, and I see it in Cormac McCarthy's fiction, that the eye and, and physical description can be just render and rupture the very thing that's being described into something else. And I really find that beautiful in this poem kind of exactly echoes that a lot. Um, so the final poem I'm going to have you read today is on page 43, and it's To the Ghost of an Old Girlfriend. And I want to mention that earlier in the book, I'm, I, there's another poem that references the girlfriend as well, but it's not to the ghost of that girlfriend. Uh, are those poems... I had, a, I had a few girlfriends, and... <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I just wanted... I think that one is to either a girlfriend that's no longer around or dead as well, or... I I was just wondering if those poems are I don't know I I guess there's nothing like uh, uh, premeditated about composing those poems that they are just the ones that are occurring to you right now in your life um, but do you want to say anything about either one of those um, poems? Well, 
the, the question the question really is just an extension of the previous question. You know, do I notice anything different about these books? Sure. When I was when I was 25, I didn't have uh, I didn't have old dead girlfriends. <laughs> I, had, <laughs> I had very living angry girlfriends or <laughs> very living girlfriends who didn't want anything to do with me anymore, <laughs> like most people. Uh, but um, uh, I, I probably had three or four. Um, uh, Major girlfriends. I don't know what the term would be. Uh, I was in love with three or four people before I found Deborah. Yeah. And, uh, and two of those people in the course of things died. Uh, and, wow. and, and I was close enough to them or to, you know, people who knew them to, uh, to learn about it in one case belatedly. And it's a, it's a, it's a striking and, and unhappy moment when you first lose not your aged relatives or even your parents. I mean, that's, that's emotionally much harder. Right. But when you lose somebody you were close to who was your age, it's, mm. you know, it's the toll of mortality, among other things. But it's also a sadness that there are things that can't be said. Definitely. All right. Yeah. Whenever you're ready. For an old girlfriend long dead. Lying on that blanket, nights on the seventh green, in the dry air, the scent of gasoline. Nothing above us but the ragged moon. Nothing between but a whispered soon. Well, such was romance in the 70s. Watergate and Cambodia, the public lies made our love seem somehow more true. Of the few things I wanted then, I needed you. I remember our last arguments, the angry calls, then the long silence, those northern falls, we drifted toward our newly manufactured lives. Does anything else of us survive? That day in Paris, perhaps, when you swore our crummy hotel was all you were looking for, each cobbled street, each dry baguette, even the worthless Sioux, nothing you forget. Outside a block away, the endless sand flowed roughly, then brightly, then, then nothing. Nothing later went quite that far. I remember that spring, those breasts, that car. William Logan, thanks for uh, joining me on New Books and Poetry. John, thanks very much. You're welcome. <laughs>